Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us um, on this very amazing night. Inshallah, I'm hoping that we will finish Surah um, Al Tawbah for uh, day eight. It's been an amazing journey. Um, and, you know, I have to start by, by calling out the amazing khutbah on Friday, which is so apropos for this time. Um, I'm really grateful for, you know, any holiday that we have. Um, and so it's been really nice to have the four day here in America, Thanksgiving holiday. And, you know, despite um, the, you know, controversial reasons for Thanksgiving, um, you know, I'm still extremely grateful for any time that we can gather with loved ones and friends, family, and when life slows down for a little bit. And so very appropriately and beautifully, um, Sheikh gave a khutbah called The Art of Gratitude. Um, and embodying beauty as Islam on Friday and just you know reminded us about what gratitude really means and how easy it is for us to slip into believing that whatever we have um, is an entitlement and um, that it's important for us as Muslims always to remember that for all of the enjoyment and happiness and blessings that we have that there are people around the world who obviously don't have what we have or don't get to experience what we get to experience um, you know, it's not. It's, it was not your typical gratitude talk. There was a lot of really important, thought-provoking, um, you know, lessons that were really grounded in our traditions. So I really encourage people to, um, to watch it, and um, you know, especially powerful because, you know, at this time, you know, we we were really we were really blessed to have family and friends join us from afar, and you know, it's such a short amount of time. So they've already come and gone, and it's like reminds me of the legacy of. Um, of actually like the professor's mom because you know every time we gather with people we love and we're always sad when it's time to go um, we always hear her voice you know telling us no you have to say alhamdulillah alhamdulillah and be grateful for any time that you have any small moment and this is one of these things you know she she left this planet back in 2011 so you know and her her very strong beautiful legacy remains and I, I'm so grateful for that because so much of what we learn here is really from mama and and her you know living example and you know just it's amazing to see how it continues on and and uh, so that's really beautiful and then as you know as always we become immediately reminded after this very powerful khutbah um, of how grateful we are we we oftentimes as you know get a lot of contact from people who are in very difficult situations. Um, they're in abusive situations, they're in dire situations, they feel like they don't have anyone to turn to. Alhamdulillah, they are able to find us, they reach out. Um, and, you know, this was like um, a really important, I think, I've actually affected, I think, the khutbah, which is the portion that is embodying beauty as Islam. So again, one of the many, many, many stories of converts to Islam who come to, you know, um, come to the faith, they get married, <coughs> um, soon after um, they, um, and this is, you know, women in particular who are vulnerable, um, who end up finding that the, the person that they married becomes um, very abusive. Wahhabi starts using Islam as justification for all the reasons why she as a woman, as a, as a convert, you know, has basically no rights, doesn't know anything, can't defend herself, doesn't know the hadith, doesn't know the tradition, you know, m women have to be subservient to men. Um, and, and pretty soon, you know, when you are in a situation like that, you get very confused and, you know, and unfortunately, in many cases, even, um, you know, physically abused as well as mentally abused. And, and this is just one of so many different, you know, um, stories that we've encountered, that we've, you know, been involved in, assisted with, 
Um, and it was just an immediate reminder again of just that, you know, juxtaposition of, you know, on the one hand, you have so many things to be grateful for, and then immediately are reminded of people who are, you know, did nothing wrong and find themselves in a situation where they don't know where to turn and have no family, no friends, no one to reach out, no one to help. So, um, you know, it's a it's an amazing um, situation. So I just wanted to then emphasize the really powerful lessons that Sheikh shared, which you know is really also at the at the foundation of everything we learn here, is that Islam is about embodying beauty and it's about embodying you know tranquility and peacefulness and everything good, and that that in itself is its own heuristic. Like if something is beautiful. Um, we know God is beautiful and God loves beauty, um, and if something is ugly or, you know, hurtful or um, just uh, backwards or oppressive, by definition that cannot be of Islam, it cannot be of the divine, and as we've learned here, part of us as individuals embodying beauty is, is being the type of person that actually attracts people to Islam and invites people to Islam and, and through our example um, you know teaches people that Islam is something that is absolutely divine and beautiful and it should not repel you from the religion and so when we hear these cases where you know women are really um, you know beaten in so many ways physically emotionally spiritually um, by a very ugly Islam and then they eventually question whether they you know why did they come to Islam why did they convert um, you know, it's it's just an important um, you know grounding and foundation that we have to remember that we really teach here, and that maybe in some ways we take for granted because when we hear you know other people struggling with an Islam that they experience is very ugly and still question you know is this Islam, we know immediately no if it's ugly like that it's it cannot be of God it cannot be of the divine or at least the God that we believe in and and we um, we trust. So um, I hope that if anyone out there is hearing this and is experiencing a really ugly version of Islam or someone's telling you that something that you feel internally, intuitively is, is ugly or oppressive or hurtful or, you know, causes you anything but a feeling of peace and love and tranquility, that there's something seriously wrong and to try and reach out and get some help. So. Um, Perhaps we can, you know, put some resources on on either our website or social media for people who might be in that situation. But just to know that, you know, I, I'm so grateful for everything we learn here because it, it supports a very rich, vibrant, beautiful, humanistic, elevating Islam that empowers us to be the best versions of ourselves. And anything short of that is not is not something that I, you know, sh that you should believe is Islam. So uh, don't believe if people are trying to gaslight you that. Islam is anything but beautiful. So um, for that, I'm, I'm so grateful. And also I want to um, call out again or let you remind people that, um, you know, we have our uh, Prophet's Pulpit Share with a Friend campaign ongoing. And I know that people are starting to receive um, some of the shipments that we've uh, sent out because people are starting to send back really lovely messages. And I thought I would just end by sharing this really nice message that was posted on um, YouTube. Assalamu alaikum, everyone at the Asuli Institute. Thank you so much for my copy of The Prophet's Pulpit. I just finished reading the first chapter and it has been a while since I've read something that has left me feeling renewed, affirmed, hopeful, and with a sense of relief. There's so much to digest nowadays and I look to Asuli to help me understand our deen. Um, my affinity, or, um, I'm truly grateful for all of the hard work you do. So, you know, it's a, uh, The Prophet's Pulpit is such um, an important, like, book for, you know, anyone, Muslim and non-Muslim, who really wants to understand, like, kind of this beautiful, 
active, vibrant, social justice oriented, humanistic Islam that we've been teaching here. It's kind of like who we are and what we do um, encapsulated in a book. So get, definitely get your copy for yourself um, and for your friends. Don't be shy. I've also heard that people have said they feel bad um, asking for a book because they feel like they can pay for it. So, um, you know, that may be the case, but also for every book that you ask for and that we, we spread, we are also increasing the hasanet of the donor, the very kind and generous donor. So don't feel bad and um, let's, just, let's just get it out there. So hopefully, you know, we can change lives and make people find a really beautiful Islam. So thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you, Sheikh. And looking forward to another amazing session, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah al-Azim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala al-Habib al-Mustafa Muhammad al-Wusra al-Rahmatan lil-Alameen. خاتم الرسل والأنبياء أجمعين وعلى آله الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحاب المختارين وعلى من اتبع بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين So we stopped at 1-11 Yeah, okay. The, the, okay. So we, we had stopped at 111, but we had skipped forward um, to 119 because of the context. Um, although there is a, a, a bit more to be said about um, uh, Especially the, the the portion from one eleven to one nineteen. Okay. So the the stopping point was right after discussing the incident of Masjid Dirar or the um, um, the incident with uh, the, the mosque. Um, that was built um, Masjid Qiba or what's also called Masjid Dirar as the Quran um, describes it and um, you will recall that um, Masjid Qiba was as if the opposition, the opposition faction um, in Medina, um, it, it, it's not that just that they organized and created an, an institution symbolic for their presence, um, but The, 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 this whole incident is is often um, not sufficiently analyzed and 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 vetted out as it should be. I mean, in, in this there's some review, so I'm going to be repeating myself a little bit. Uh, 
but a lot of contemporary historians look at this and they it's as it's as if when remember what initially happens is that they initially build that mosque and then they invite the prophet to pray in it and he agrees to pray in it but then there is an intervention from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that warns the prophet about validating the or legitimating this building and whereupon the prophet orders that this mosque be torn down and um and so on it, it's a subtle point but a, an important point it is not that the prophet realized that the people behind this effort the effort of masjid Qibla, are the opposition groups upon divine intervention that wouldn't make much sense the the figures involved in the building of masjid Qibla were well known and most the the leadership in particular like abu amr who became described as abu amr al-rahib um, the, the Prophet knew very well that these were a group of people who had created an oppositional faction. Knew very well from the, from the moment that they came and told him that we have this mosque and knew that these people had bonded over the fact that they are the other within Medina. So in other words, that they are a dissenting, uh, diverging factor within Medina. The, the dangerous element, as you will recall, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informs the Prophet about and what changes the entire equation to the tearing down of Masjid Qibla is it becomes clear that Abu Amir al-Rahib had used this institutional structure to invite foreign intervention that he had reached out, as I said, to the Byzantians. And in fact, after the mosque is torn down, Abu Amr al-Rahim leaves Medina and leaves Islam um, um, and uh, goes back to being a Christian uh, and, and never returns to, in fact, he, he dies in Byzantine controlled territory and never returns to Medina. This is important. Why? Because 
modern interpreters sometimes use the incident of Masjid Qiba or Masjid Durar to argue that this is a precedent that supports the proposition that in an Islamic society or an Islamic state, um, parties are unlawful or factionalism, the existence of an opposition group that organizes and that, that, that communicates and relates that has an, an, some type of cohesive structure for the purpose of opposition uh, is un-Islamic. And they will cite the incident of Masjid Qiba or Masjid Durar uh, uh, in support of that. And say, so we'll see, look, you know, the, the, the Prophet didn't allow for an oppositional faction. But to say the least, that's a misreading of the historical track record. Because if the Prophet didn't allow for the, an oppositional faction, the Prophet would have taken action against this group before they built a mosque. The, the, the building of a mosque was, was not what created that oppositional group. Or the Prophet would have taken action against them after tearing down the mosque. Neither of these happened. He didn't take action against them before tearing down the mosque or after tearing down the mosque. The action taken against them was to say specifically that since this mosque was being used to invite foreign intervention, and note that the Quran and, and is very specific to say this mosque was not established on the basis of taqwa. In other words, that this is not a mosque that was established for the purpose of worshiping God. This was a mosque that was established for a completely different purpose, for a, 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 the, the, the specific purpose of creating an institutional structure to invite, in typical medieval-type politics fashion, to invite an, a, a foreign intervention and an alternative leadership that um, would be supported by the Byzantians in direct challenge to the Prophet Muhammad All that one can take from this event is that A, when it came to the to, to something that happens in Muslim countries all the time, the involvement of foreign uh, powers into Muslim affairs, that altered the equation. But as I said before, what is far more significant is that the, the, the key players, other than Abu Amr al-Rahib, even Abu Amr al-Rahib, although he, he left Medina, um, 
uh, we there's no evidence in the historical record that he escaped because he was directly threatened or indirectly threatened. He, he seems to have realized that the jig was up and that whatever he was planning, uh, it was not going to work. Um, and that he left Islam altogether because there was you know, no longer a, a point to the pretense of being a Muslim. But as I said before, that it is, it is particularly significant. And as we will see when we talk about the balance of Surah Tawbah, that particularly significant that this incident was not used to support a persecutorial or a, a, a dynamic of persecution of the of dissenting voices even with the existence of a prophet receiving revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A priori, if dissent was tolerated with an actual prophet, then, you know, um, if you can, if you if you can dissent and be tolerated with the, with a prophet, it, it, it goes without saying that um, no one can claim the type of authority and legitimacy that the Prophet ﷺ was entitled to. Okay, so this was the the Masjid Durar incident and. Uh, let's see if I um, if I forget anything. Yeah, maybe the, the final point, uh, um, this is implied in what I said, but let's make it explicit. Um, what I find also quite... Masjid Durar, it was, remember that what incited these people to um, what incited the events around Masjid Dirar or Masjid Qiba was the clash with Byzantium. There was a at the time of the Prophet there was a faction in Medina and among especially um, not the old timers, not the Muslims who had converted uh, and, and had a track record of you know about a decade of Islam, but that saw 
it was one thing for them to become Muslim. It was another to accept the idea that, well, not only are we Muslim, but now we might come into a full confrontation with the superpowers of the world. That to them was unheard of and without precedent in the living memory of Arab tribes, that Arab tribes for, for a long period of time have accepted the idea that the extent of what we would call foreign policy or foreign politics is to deal with other Arabs. In other words, to compete with fellow Arabs for resources, for supremacy, for the fact that now Islam was bringing them into a confrontation with the superpowers of the region, the regions that they, the, the superpowers that they had um, been submissive to for the, the, the existing memory of the Arab tribes is what sparked the idea, well, this is a disastrous policy that will eventually result in the Byzantines invading our lands and dominating us, punishing us for challenging them. So it is in order for us to be on the safe side, let's make, let's contact the Byzantines and let's assure the Byzantines of our loyalty. So it was a, it was a, you know, the type of lowly backstabbing behavior that takes place all over Muslim, the Muslim world today. Let's go around and betray our Muslim brethren and by assuring the superpower that, you know, these people, we're not really with them, we're with you. And that's why, if you notice, the building which they have built will never cease to be a source of deep disquiet in their hearts until their hearts crumble to pieces. And God is all-knowing and wise. The riba the disquiet that the Quran is talking about is this weakness of faith that there were people who, you know, were, were conspiring to for a political political position for themselves, like Abu Amir al-Rahib, but. There, the, the supporters of Abu Amr Rahim, sort of the rank and file, the average human being that was part of this effort, what tempted them, what drew them in, was the idea that, you know, these policies, that the policies of going out in Ghazwa Tabuk, 
and in and confronting instead of being subservient to the Byzantines, challenging the Byzantines will have disastrous consequences. And the disastrous consequences is that the Byzantines will punish us. And when they punish us, we must have positive, concrete proof that we were always pro-Byzantine, not pro-Muhammad. So the riba that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about is Allah is telling them it is not an issue of building a building. The problem is in your hearts. You are weak in faith. In, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a word, you are um, um, treacherous people. Because even if you don't agree with the policies of your ummah and the majority, for you to go around and try to secure for yourself a safe position by betraying your own, the Ill, that's an illness, a moral illness in your soul. And so Allah is telling them, and in fact, subhanAllah, I mean, when, when you look at the, the history of the individuals, there are some, as we talked about, that repented. But some that either eventually fought against Abu Bakr in the apostasy wars and were killed in these wars, or fought in the apostasy wars and sort of dis disappear in history as people who continue to have a troubled faith. The incident, if we would have learned from the incident of Masjid al-Durar, it is treachery, especially in the age of colonialism. Nothing destroyed the Muslim Ummah like treachery. Nothing destroyed the Muslim Ummah like the willingness of a Muslim to ally themselves with non-Muslims against their Muslim brethren. If you look at Islamic history during colonialism, nothing destroyed the Muslim Ummah like the that the very same attitude of that motivated the type of behavior that we witnessed in the incident of Masjid al-Durar. If instead of turning the, the seerah into fairy tales, we would have extracted the moral lesson and listened very carefully to Allah's voice when Allah tells us that this will be a source of disquiet in your heart. And in other words, your faith is meaningless. If you accept for yourself to this type of morally treacherous conduct, 
so much of what is offensive about modern Muslim history would not have been. I mean, this is one of the things that it's truly strikes you about modern Muslim history in the age of colonialism. The, 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 the extent to which whatever bonded Muslims together and made a Muslim feel a sense of loyalty and fidelity to a fellow Muslim, had that, that, that ethic that says it is beneath you to stab a fellow Muslim in the back in order to jostle for a favorite position, that ethic was it was it had completely deteriorated uh, among in, in Muslims in the wake of modernity, because we we find I mean, whether within even uh, uh, I mean if you if you read the story of of how the Khilafah crumbled and the amount of betrayals committed that brought down the Khilafah or the amount of betrayals that. Uh, destroyed the very idea of Islamic unity, an idea that we have not been able to recapture, a moral ethic that we have not been able to recapture um, since. But subhanAllah, I mean, you will, you, you can find this incident of Masjid Qibat taught in, in so many places, but you will rarely find anyone talking about this incident in the context of a, a, a moral lesson against the type of treachery that breaks the fabric of, um, of uh, trust and security towards a fellow Muslim. Um, you know, last point. Look at, I mean, when you think of if you want to understand how social ethics can, can in fact do trump pragmatic politics and the extent to which it is the trying to convince Muslims that it is real politic that actually guides um, the other, the non-Muslim other, um, is a fallacy. Just so you understand what I'm talking about. So many Muslims in the age of modernity were taught and became convinced that they live in a non-ideological world, that they live in a world motivated by pragmatic material interests and not ideological causes. So much of what Muslims have been taught in many ways is that they live in a post-ideological world, in a world that, a world whose the sole ideology of the world in which they exist is the ideology of consumption and materialism. Study 
the relationship between two countries that once were in direct military conflict, like Britain and the United States. Study the way that Britain and the United States have shared technology, shared privileged economic status and dynamics, have synchronized their foreign policies, even when there was every reason for these two countries to clash over oil resources in the Middle East, it is ideology, and sadly racial ideology, that prevented Britain and the United States from ever clashing over oil resources, even scarce resources. And ideology was so powerful that they redefined their pragmatic interests to avoid any serious clash. This type of synchronicity that you find today in Western civilization, and sometimes what is called Judeo-Christian civilization, is not driven by pragmatic material interests. It's driven by ideology and identity. And basic to this ideology and identity is that within the ideological framework that defines what is often called Judeo-Christian or Western is a basic ethic of non-betrayal and non-treasury. There were many colonial conflicts between the French and the British, and there were many opportunities for the French to make side deals and the British to make side deals among with the colonized and to, in a treacherous fashion, stab one another in the back. What is truly remarkable is while the colonized were often expected to betray the fellow colonized, the dominated, the subjugated, is always expected to betray the equally powerless subjugated subject. The subjugator, the colonizer, was often driven by an ethic in which they don't betray. If It's like the, 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 um, uh, two lions will not betray each other as they feed on prey. The prey might be expected to betray one another and to sort of shove one another to be fed by the lion. But two lions will not betray each other. It, 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 it turns, it, it, you cannot build an ummah unless there is a powerful social ethic against treachery and backstabbing. It, 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 re reflect on it. 
and the more and read and the more you study history and the more you reflect you will find that among us Muslims like the rest of the colonized world the one of the most basic ethics that we lack is that we will betray one another we will easily stab one another in the back while that ethics among people who dominate rather than be dominated um, is very different. Okay, so because of the context of the Byzantine, as I said, the Byzantine conflict, and because of the context that what drove these people to that treacherous thinking is the idea, oh my God, we're going to be in conflict with Byzantium. And, well, let's jostle for a, a position. This is why right after 111, you get So right after that, what follows is Allah's declaration To the believers, it's like after telling them that, listen, you know, the ailment in your heart or the ailment in, in one's heart that will, um, how, how the, the disquiet, as Muhammad Asa translates it, the the anxiety, the, the, the weakness, the, Muhammad Asad uses the word disquiet, that eats away at your faith. If you want to understand what is core to the faith, it is your relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what bonds this ummah together, the basic social more that exists, that weaves this ummah together, is that your lives and your possessions it is as if they have been already purchased or sold in a metaphorical sense to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in other words the equation is I've sold my soul and I've sold all my possessions and I've sold my knowledge and I've sold everything that defines me as a human being. To Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because I believe in salvation. So what do you own of what you are? Nothing. It, it's owned by Allah. It is in Allah's care. So as why is it wrong to say, oh, well, you know, these Muslims, they're, they're, they're following. The, let's assume that, they, in fact, they were following a disastrous policy. But what is the ethic that tells you you can't strike a separate deal and make yourself safe and say, let my fellow Muslims go to hell? Why? Because you already, if the, the equation of belief is that you've already sold what you are to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So 
this is an entire moral attitude that drives the, the whole trajectory of sacrifice is that whether I live on it or die is in Allah's hands. Whether ultimately I survive a battle or don't survive a battle, whether ultimately I survive in the, in the struggles of life or I don't survive, it is, I've entrusted all of that in Allah's hands because the very paradigm, the very attitude, the very ideological framework for my existence in this life is that I struggle in Allah's path. Now, why does Allah says, وَعَدًا عَلَيْهِ حَقًّا فِي التَّوْرَاتِ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ وَالْقُرْآنِ وَمَنْ أَوْفَى بِعَهْدِهِ مِنَ اللَّهِ فَاسْتَبْشِرُوا بِبَيْعِكُمُ الَّذِي بَيَعْتُمْ بِهِ وَذَلِكَ هُوَ الْفَوْضُ الْعَظِيمِ So, notice, says, um, where's the part? Yeah. So, uh, so they fight in God's cause and slay and are slain. The promise which in truth God has willed upon God's self in the, wor in the words of the Torah and the Gospel and the Quran. And who could be more faithful to God's covenant than God? Why is the reminder that this is in the Torah and in the Bible, in the Gospel, the New Testament, um, as well as in the Quran. This, it is not an Islamic thing. It is a monotheistic thing. This is the relationship from the time of the, the, the first monotheistic prophet, you know, of course from, from the time of Adam, but from the, the, the father of all, of all the prophets, Ibrahim salam, that has always been what defines the relationship between Allah the Creator and the created is that you are here as guests on terms, the terms for your existence on this earth are defined by Allah. And the terms is that you already, you have committed to the idea that you own nothing of your body, of your soul, of your knowledge, of your efforts, of your possessions. The true owner of all is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you've accepted that because you've committed yourself to the belief that there is a life beyond this life. And that you want 
what Allah has to offer in the life beyond this life. If this, if you're, how does treachery happen? Why does betrayal happen? Why do people experience things like jealousy or envy or um, feel Remember, this is this is the surah that Allah tells us at the beginning in Surah At-Tawbah that these people started out aspiring for a level of faith. That they aspired for a level of faith, but they didn't attain it. The, what preoccupies Surah At-Tawbah is why is it that people don't attain the level of faith that they start out saying we want? In a word, like why is it that people end up, whether they recognize it or not, being hypocrites? Well, towards the end now of the surah, Allah comes and tells us, sort of like takes the, the lid of, off, or, you know, uh, takes the covers off and says, listen, earlier Allah says the true believers, they commit themselves to enjoining the good, al-amr al-maruf and hawna an al-munkar, that the, the true believers commit to a bond of the pursuit of goodness and resisting the opposite of what is good. Now, Allah comes and says that understand that it, 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 the very premise of monotheism, if you are unable to look beyond this world, then your faith will ultimately lead to hypocrisy. The, the the reason that people fail themselves morally is that they weaken in thinking there are no consequences that will follow beyond this world. I can turn around and make a strike and deal with the Byzantines and there won't be real consequences in the hereafter. In our, well, I can strike a deal with British colonists or, uh, you know, American imperialists, or I can strike, as, as we see today, I can go around and strike a sweet deal with the Israelis and, you know, and forget my fellow Muslim brethren, you know, Israelis kill Palestinians every day. Well, it's none of my business. It, it doesn't bother me. You don't get, imagine... I mean, this this part drives me insane because it, it, it is constantly overlooked and ignored. You would never, it, it, we are indoctrinated to know that you will never be able to strike a deal with the Israeli government to betray another group of Israelis in Israel. Israel will never strike 
a sweet deal to, um, you know, end up robbing a, 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 another group of Israelis of their homes or, uh, you know, end up uh, displacing them or end up making them refugees or end up... We, we all understand that you, in similarly, when it comes especially to white people, American white people, you can never make a special deal with the American government to overlook, for instance, uh, that you're going to go and arrest a bunch of white, blonde American citizens and put them to death. And the American government will just say, okay, well, we'll just overlook that because of material. You might, you might expect that the American government will do that when it comes to Arabs or, you know, Turks who happen to carry an American citizenship, but not when it comes to, quote-unquote, real Americans. How do we get into a world with these types of ethical assumptions or unethical assumptions? Why is it that we take for granted that we, it doesn't surprise us that a Saudi would kill an Iranian, and an Iranian would kill a Saudi, or a Saudi would kill a Yemeni, or a Yemeni would kill a Saudi. It doesn't even raise an eyebrow. But our attitude is very different if it comes to a British person and a French person, or a white European and another white European. These are social ethics, social mores that are created because of our subconscious system of knowledge and information. It is what defines the way we construct and understand the world we live in. And when Allah comes and tells you, what explains what we would recognize as immoral conduct, and you will always find the weakness in faith, the, the weakness of faith that betrays the same basic covenant that Allah has created, the monotheistic covenant, time and time again with prophet after prophet, is that when it comes to the believers, you you, in your heart, you have to accept, you have to believe that you don't actually own your body, you don't actually own your possessions, you don't actually own your knowledge. All of that is pre-owned by your Creator. Okay. And then, of course, Allah describes this um, as, you know, فَاسْتَبْشِرُوا بِبَيْعَكُمُ الَّذِي بَيَعَتُمْ بِهِ um, how does he translate? Um, it is a triumph for those who turn unto God in repentance whenever, and who worship uh, and bow down. No, no, I'm wrong. Reading the um, Torah and could be more. Rejoice then in. Okay, Muhammad Asad just translates it as bargain. Rejoice then in the bargain which you have made. Uh, with God, for this is the triumph supreme. 
yes, it is. Baya is is can be translated as um, as um, um, as a bargain. It can be translated uh, as a sale. But the reason that a sale is called a bayah or a bargain is called a bayah is that a bayah is the handing over of something. This is linguistically. It is the handing over of something for a true and accurate exchanged value. So, in, when, linguistically, when Allah says, so rejoice, it's as if Allah is saying, only Allah can receive from you who you are and truly value who you are in a true and complete and honest fashion. It's, that's why if every bayah of a human being to another human being is the, 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 uh, every bayah of a human being to another human being is an act of deceit because a human being can never pay the true and honest real value for another human being. So it, 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 when say that uh, uh, that it's as if by definition a, a, a true exchange of value is not possible. Only with your maker, only with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can you have a an exchange in which you in which a true and honest and complete value is exchanged. Okay. Now look what follows this. التائبون العابدون الحامدون السابحون الراكعون الساجدون الآمرون بالمعروف والنهون عن المنكر. So Allah knows that the temptation at this point is for those who understand, as unfortunately so many have. Subhanallah, just like that to say, oh well, what Allah is talking about is just war. What Allah is really talking about is that as long as I'm willing to go and be a fighter, to enlist as a soldier, and as long as I'm putting my life on the line, and then that's the sale. That's the whole dynamic. And subhanAllah, because Allah knows that this is precisely how human beings think, Allah comes right after that and tells you, no, it is not about 
that you are simply willing to join a military campaign. It is about the following. At-Ta'ibuna. This is, it is just so beautifully weaved that, um, so this is uh, 112, right? At-Ta'ibuna. Ta'ibuna is people who constantly turn towards Allah in repentance. They, they, to constantly have a repentful soul means you've dominated your ego. If your attitude is constantly one of tawbah, it means that you are anchoring yourself in humility. So, al-ta'ibuna, al-abiduna, those who are in a constant state of worshipfulness, al-hamiduna, constant state of gratitude. Al-sa'ihuna, uh, As-siyaha, this is, uh, in Arabic, modern Arabic, we call a tourist, as-sa'ih. There is sort of a, a, a co-optation of a word that is far, far more meaningful, because as-sa'ihuna, which the same word for as-sa'ih as a tourist, are those who are in a constant state of search for truth and good and goodliness. So it is actually inaccurate to call a tourist a sa'ah because a tourist not necessarily it, it, a tourist might be constantly traveling, but not in constantly in search in in search of what is good. But a sa'ah in Quranic Arabic is someone who has committed themselves to be in a constant search for what is good and what is beautiful. For the search for khusn is siyaha. Then al-raki'una, those who are those who are constantly in prostration and prayer, and those who are constantly in pursuit of what is ma'roof, what is good, and resisting the, the opposite of what is good, or resisting evil, resisting what is wrong. And constantly mindful of the rights and the, the, the sanctified space of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then after that, وَبَشِّرِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ So Allah comes and says, it is not just that you are willing to fight. What it's about to avoid the type of human being that is willing to in, get involved in the treacherous behavior in Majjad Durar. 
the type of human being that is doesn't trust Allah and it is not about living for a principle and dying for a principle you need a human being that recognizes that they have or they don't own their body or their 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 intellect or their soul or their material possessions but lest you think that this is about simply being willing to go to war it is not it is about an entire moral attitude moral attitude anchored in humility in ibadah in a constant state of supplication and remembrance in hamd in a constant state of gratitude and remember like the khutbah i talked about yesterday that gratitude is impossible true gratitude is impossible unless you rein in the ego as long as you think that what i've achieved in life comes from me true gratitude is not possible when you get to the point where you understand that every moment of health every moment of ability every moment of intellect every moment of insight every moment of comprehension every moment of memory every moment of love every moment of warm feeling every moment of gratitude all comes from allah not yourself then you dominate the ego and then gratitude then hand becomes possible until then we we are in the pretense of hand we say alhamdulillah but but it, it doesn't resonate because you you really think that you have a hand in what you enjoy and you don't and so in it so when it is like saying well there are there are many people who could be willing to sacrifice their lives but they're not true believers so for true belief to exist the formula is what Allah gives you in 112 okay now we come to وَمَا كَانَ لِلنَّبِيِّ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَنْ يَسْتَغْفِرُوا لِلْمُشْرِكِينَ وَلَوْ كَانُوا أُلِي قُرْبَى مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُمْ أَنَّهُمْ أَصْحَابُ الْجَحِيمِ وَمَا كَانَ اسْتِغْفَارُ إِبْرَاهِيمَ لِأَبِيهِ إِلَّا عَنْ مَوْعِدَةٍ وَعَدَهَا إِيَّاهُ فَلَمَّا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُ أَنَّهُ عَدُوٌّ لِلَّهِ this is 113 and 114 uh, uh, it does not behove the prophet and those who have attained to faith to pray that they who ascribe the unbelievers to be forgiven by god even though they happen to be their near of kin so even though if they're their relatives and their loved ones 
after it has been made clear unto them that those sinners are destined for blazing fire. And Ibrahim's prayer that his father be forgiven was but due to a promise which he had given the later in lifetime in his lifetime. And it was when it was made clear unto Ibrahim that his father is God's enemy, Ibrahim disavoid him, disobeyed him. Although behold, Ibrahim was most tender-hearted and most clement. Awan Halim is that Ibrahim was known for his empathetic and warm heart and, and his, his tender heart. So after this description, Allah comes to an often source of but, but we, we we have to pause here because these ayat. I can't tell you the number of times that Muslims have come to me and said, "We were told that we cannot ask Allah to forgive, or we can't make du'a for um, our non, especially converts, for our fathers or mothers or." siblings or whatever because they were not Muslim and after we became Muslim that then we were told that it is haram for us to make dua and then what is cited are these verses. The Razi has his the, the, the most um, I think probative understanding of these verses. Look, what these verses say, as long as you know that we are talking about people who are destined to hellfire, in other words, people who have been clearly condemned by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you must distance yourself morally from them instead of relying on the fiction of moral relativism in saying, well, you know, maybe they're not that bad. Maybe God will forgive them anyway. So maybe it's okay. But what is the the, the, the idla here? What is the, the, the operative cause here? the critical point the critical point is that you know now we get it into Raz says do you know to a, a clear probability or you know to a degree of certitude that in fact these people are enemies of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And quite simply, when it came to Ibrahim's father, how does Ibrahim know that his father is Allah's enemy? Well, because Ibrahim was a prophet. And Allah, in, in, in receiving revelation, his father became the embodiment of what is opposed to the prophecy of Ibrahim, to the monotheism of Ibrahim. For the overwhelming 
majority of people let me strike that strike that let me put it this way if your father is a Geertz Wilder, for instance, a sworn Islamophobe, someone who has dedicated himself to demonizing Muslims, praying, forgiving towards this type of immorality is itself immoral so asking Allah to forgive a person who is a sworn enemy of Allah that's what the surah is talking about that these ayahs or these ayat are talking about it is not talking about someone who is not simply a Muslim it could be they're not a Muslim because they've never had an opportunity to learn about Islam. It could be that their experiences in life, they were not a sworn enemy of, they simply existed as someone without a faith. The, 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 Allah means it when Allah says, مِن بَعْدِ مَا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُمْ أَنَّهُمْ أَصْحَابُ الجحيم. After it became clear that these people are destined to hellfire, how often can you say about someone that it is clear that they're destined to hellfire? The crux of the debate is something quite unfortunate. Is that you have numerous narratives that tell you that 113 was revealed to tell the Prophet ﷺ not to pray for forgiveness for Abdul Muttalib, for his uncle, or to pray for forgiveness for his mother, or for forgiveness for his father. And you have all these riwayat, all these traditions that tell you that 113 and, and they go to, to, to some length and tell you that 113 came to basically tell the, the, the prophet, the, you know, your mother, your father, your uncle are all destined to hellfire. Do not pray for them. And people who say that when these ayat are prohibiting a Muslim at, in all cases, in all situations, from asking Allah to forgive someone who's not a Muslim, these are the riwayat they rely on. But these riwayat are extremely problematic. Why would the Prophet's mother be destined to hellfire? She never even had an opportunity to accept or reject the, the Prophet's prophecy. She existed at a time where no prophets had come to Arabia for a long time, on what basis do we say that she's destined to hellfire? Why would the prophet's father be destined to hellfire? 
as for all the riwayat that we have that say that the Prophet was told not to pray for his father or mother, we have riwayat that tell us that the Prophet ﷺ in fact went to great lengths to constantly ask Allah to forgive his father and mother. And before Surah At-Tawbah and after Surah At-Tawbah. What is even prob more problematic is that when you start getting into who was involved in the narrations of these riwayat that say that the Prophet's father and mother and so on um, are in hellfire, you you discover something and later on I, I found I, um, that um, uh, what's the name of that Saudi scholar? Um, <coughs> Hassan Farhan al-Maliki. Hassan Farhan al-Maliki. Reached the same conclusion, subhanAllah, that the, the narrators of these traditions were among the anti-Alil Bayt faction. That the, the, the correlation between an Nawasib and the narratives that tell us that the Prophet's father or mother are in hellfire and that, in other words, that, 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 that politically motivated drive to say there is nothing special about Alil Bayt. It, it, you know, if, if, if the Prophet's father or the Prophet's mother are doomed to hellfire, then there is, how could you claim that there is something special about the blood of the Prophet And the fact that there is this political motivation or that the, the narrators involved makes me extremely suspect about these traditions. I actually will go beyond that and say, I don't accept the authenticity of any of the traditions that tell us that the, father, the Prophet's father, father or mother are in hellfire. I don't accept them, one, because of the, 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 the recurrence of individuals who are, were clearly nawasib in the transmission of these traditions, but I don't also accept them on theological grounds. How can we be told that Allah will decide the fate of those who believed or did not believe that in, in periods in which there were no prophets and then we have these traditions that tell us somehow Allah told the prophet that your mother and your father and hellfire and it is just theologically incongruent with the message of the Quran and the message of Islam but I want to make very clear, these ayat, all they are telling you is 
if it is clear that a person is an enemy, is the dedicated enemy to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that as a Razi says, it becomes preponderant in your belief, or in Razi even says a state of uh, yaqeen, that you have a, cer a cer sense of certitude, that this person, that asking Allah to forgive this person is being morally, um, is, is uh, to be morally deficient. In other words, when, when, you, when you come to a serial killer and say, oh, you know, oh, yeah, you're sure, you're a serial killer, but may God forgive you. And um, you have ignored the rights of the victims that have suffered and being morally oblivious to the rights of the victims is itself a moral deficiency. But for the vast majority of people that are not enemies of God, but simply did not believe for whatever reason, um, asking Allah to forgive is, is the most Islamic thing. You can do it. In other words, as long as you are not, you cannot say, I am absolutely sure that this person is in hellfire, then you are not in a situation that is parallel to the Prophet Ibrahim's father, who was a sworn enemy and who went as far as to conspire with his people to burn his son alive. Remember that Azar was not just opposed to Ibrahim, he went as far as going along with his people in punishing Ibrahim by casting Ibrahim السلام, in hellfire, in a fire, uh, which, you know, he survives uh, anyway. But it's, if you have a, 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 you know, a father or relative who's a, a, a geared swelter, sworn enemy, now, there is a huge difference between you can always pray for someone to be guided. There's a huge difference between istighfar and dua bil huda. Dua bil huda is always allowable. May Allah guide that sworn enemy of Islam. But to say may Allah ignore their sins That is not your right if the person is clearly an enemy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay. You know, um, similar to the traditions about um, the Prophet uh, being told not to do istighfar for his mother because she's in hellfire, are the traditions that tell us the Prophet used to visit the grave of his mother and then he was told, oh, she's in hellfire, don't visit her grave anymore. I mean, and, and then you find traditions that reportedly, after Surah At-Tawbah, that tell us that the Prophet ﷺ regularly visited the grave of his mother. How do you reconcile that with these traditions that tell us he was ordered not to visit the, the grave of his mother? So they have the same status and the same problem.
Is this point clear? Am I, or, or am I okay? Did, did I? Is it? Did everyone understand it? Okay. So, actually, what time is it? Oh. Uh, let's take a three-minute break. Three minutes. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And of course, again, Allah reminds us, which is hardly surprising considering how often this remind this uh, uh, this reminding is repeated in the Quran. إن الله له ملك السماوات والأرض يحيي ويميت وما لكم من دون الله من ولي ولا نصير. That when all said and done, if people would only internalize the 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 core of all ethics and all morality, the sort of the, the core mechanism from which emanates all morality and ethics that to Allah is, are the heavens and the earth and that life and death is in Allah's hands and that your true wali and true nasir the, you, the, the, the source of all the 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 more the reliable source or the source upon which you can depend and rely on because that is that is the critical differentiator between people of faith and people that lack faith people of faith understand that whatever they enjoy small or big every bit of energy that they possess every movement every thought every memory every impulse every sensation comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala while of course those who are either either disbelief or those who are confused are in a case, in a state of lack of certitude they they need constant reminders that Allah intervenes but it is not a natural state for them to internalize the feeling 
the 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 certitude that it is all from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all from and to Allah now then in a, in a new movement it's like I as I often as I written in reasoning with God that the 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 Quran's soar are like musical movements in a symphony in a new movement then Allah reminds this entire this entire surah is around the theme of those who err and those and the 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 possibility of repentance that you you err and you come back and the the central theme of tawbah so then when it comes to so Allah comes back to the idea of tawbah the the idea of repentance and it's as if saying لَقَدْ تَابَ اللَّهُ عَلَى النَّبِيِّ وَالْمُهَاجِرِينَ وَالْأَنصَارِ الَّذِينَ اتَّبَعُوهُ فِي سَاعَةِ الْعُسْرَةِ If you want to understand the, the true nature of what Tawbah is about, look at the Prophet ﷺ and those who are his true disciples, those who are his two um, those who are his authentic disciples. Let's see how Muhammad Aziz translates this. Who followed him at the hour of distress, Sa'at al-Usra, when the hearts of some of the other believers had well nigh swerved from faith. Uh, so, um, so that it is the moment of hardship, this again, that central theme of Ghazwat Tabuk um, and that when it came to the to a point of the need to make a commitment, those who committed themselves to be with the Prophet, for better or for worse, those were the ones entitled to tell. But now here we get to 119, which I skipped to uh, earlier, when Allah mentions the three who, as I talked about last halaqa, um, who failed to join Ghazwa Tabuk, but because of the record of these three and because what was expected of them was better, that it, the, unlike those who um, did not fail themselves because one did not expect from them any better, those particular three which we talked about last halaqa are the ones that ended up being shunned and to make a moral point. Now notice in, in Surah At-Tawbah 
the, the constant calling from, and as we'll see when I, inshallah, summarize the surah, from the beginning of the surah till the end, morality, social morality, doesn't just flower on its own. It needs a committed position. In other words, unless people are going to be socially committed for socially for socio-ethical positions, unless people make a stand when a stand is necessary in order to uphold what is right, you're not going to end up with a society that is directed, morally directed towards proper moral goals. And the whole experience with shunning these particular three um, was to affirm and underscore that principle that it is not just a personal decision, but society, while society does not use political power and coercion to persecute, but society is duty-bound to, uh, to make a moral statement to communicate through its actions what is morally right and morally correct. Okay. So we already talked about 119 and just uh, go back to what I, I said in, in the previous halakha about this incident. And then this مَكَانَ لِأَهْلِ الْمَدِينَةِ وَمَنْ حَوْلَهُمْ مِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ أَيَّ تَخَلَّفُوا عَنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ وَلَا يَرْغَبُونَ بِأَنفُسِهِمْ عَنْ نَفْسِهِ ذَلِكَ بَأَنَّهُمْ لَا يُصِيبُهُمْ ظَمَأٌ وَلَا نَصَبٌ وَلَا مَحْمَصَةٌ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَلَا يَطَعُونَ مَوْتِئًا يَغِيظُ الْكُفَّارِ وَلَا يَنَالُونَ مِنْ عَدُوٌّ نَيْلًا إِلَّا كُتِبَ لَهُمْ بِهِ عَمَلٌ صَالِحٌ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُضَيِّعُ أَجْرَ الْمُحْسِنِينَ وَلَا يُنْفِقُونَ نَفَقَةً صَغِيرَةً وَلَا كَبِيرَةً وَلَا يَقْطَعُونَ وَادِيًا إِلَّا كُتِبَ لَهُمْ لِيَجْزِيَهُمُ اللَّهُ أَحْسَنَ مَا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ So this 120 and 121, this Muhammad's Asad translation, it does not behoove the people of the Prophet's city and the Bedouins who live around the city to hold back from following the God's apostle or to care for their own selves more than for him. For whenever they suffer from thirst or weariness or hunger in God's cause, and whenever they take any step which confounds those who deny the truth, and whenever there comes to them from the enemy, whatever may be destined for them, whenever anything thereof comes to pass, a good deed is recorded in their favor. So this reaffirms that it's a message from Allah to these, as we talked about, there is an influx of new converts various tribal groups around Medina and around Mecca that are being challenged to reorient their system of loyalty from tribal 
ethos to Islamic ethos. And Allah comes back and say and says, Allah knows fully well that you guys enter into these tribally based calculations of cost and benefit. As a tribe, are we going to gain or lose? But these ethos don't work within this Islamic paradigm shift. That, in fact, the ethos that you are called upon, you are called to commit to, is an ethos in which Allah and the Prophet are the center of everything. Understanding that it is no longer the interests of the tribe or your own interests as whatever collectivity that defines you or you think defines you. But in fact, going back to that same basic equation of all monotheistic covenants that Allah had, Allah is the true owner of everything that defines you as a human being. Okay, now we get to 121. فلولا نفر من كل من كل فرقة منهم طائفة ليتفقهوا في الدين ولينذروا قومهم إذا رجعوا إليهم لعلهم يحذرون. 122. First the translation. With all all this, it is not desirable that all of the believers take the field in the time of war. From when every note that um, time of war is placed in brackets by Muhammad Asad. So, if you just read the literal translation, it is, it is not desirable that all, that all of the believers take the field. From within every group in their midst, some shall refrain from going forth. Um, from going forth and shall devote themselves instead to acquiring a deeper knowledge of the faith and thus be able to teach their homecoming brethren so that these two might guard themselves against evil. Now, this ayah has often um, been cited um, for, with the following understanding, that Allah is saying not everyone can go fight so there has to be a group that stays back and the primary obligation of this group is to educate itself in the norms, in the Islamic norms, in the will of God, and then become a reference source for the rest because of their specialty. What's interesting, however, is that this does not it this does not seem to be the earliest understanding of these verses. 
the sources tell us that this verse, this is from narrations of Kelby and others. Um, that clans from Banu Asad, Banu Asad from uh, the tribe of Banu Asad from the clan of Khuzayma, um and others, most of them were from the clan of Khuzayma, but particularly the tribe of Banu Asad. Banu Asad seemed to have, after accepting Islam, fell upon hard economic times. I've spent quite a bit of time looking into this, and what it seems to be that Banu Asad fell upon economic, hard economic times because among the things that Islam did is that it banned Muslim tribes from making a living from raiding other tribes. It was not uncommon for tribes like the tribe of Banu Asad to make a living largely from raiding neighboring tribes. Well, part of the moral shift of Islam is that this behavior was no longer acceptable. You are not going to be able to make a living from being highway robbers effectively, or what they would call, you know, raiding, um, which literally they, they, they would call it ghazu. And there, the chiefs of Banu Asad, upon suffering the economic consequences of this ban, because the, the Sahaba that were sent back with Banu Asad made it very clear that to Banu Asad that if you want to be Muslim, then you cannot uh, raid other tribes as a means of making a living. So the chiefs of Banu Asad seem to have then, upon suffering an economic, the economic crisis that they suffered, they told their people then migrate in mass to Medina and um, demand that the authority in Medina become take take care of you financially. So, in other words, become charge of the state, if you will. So, anyway, so they they. Fled into, or they they flooded the uh, Medina, and according to numerous reports, that that they started harassing people in the roadways, and they've caused. Uh, price inflation because of the, their disruptive behavior, um, and that then this area, this revelation, was 
and the excuse they used for flooding into Medina is that, well, now that we are Muslim, we have all come to Medina to be taught Islam. And that the ayah was in, told Banu Asad that this is not the way it's supposed to work. That, in fact, if they really wanted to learn Islam, then they would send key people, Nafar, to learn the faith. And upon returning to their people, they would teach their people the faith. In other words, the excuse that you've all come to Medina um, uh, uh, to, to learn Islam is a, a false excuse. Um, there is, interestingly enough, another report um, that another tribe, the tribe of Mudar, had also experienced financial hardship after converting to Islam. According to the report, فَتَظَاهَرُوا بِالْإِسْلَامُ وَأَتْوَ عَلَى الْمَدِينَةِ حَتَّى أَصَابَ النَّاسِ جُهْدْ شَدِيدٌ وَضَيَّقُوا عَلَى النَّاسِ um, that they, again, they, they, they fled in mass into Medina, claimed that they, were, they came to Medina to learn Islam and that the purpose of the ayah was to, again, tell them that this is an invalid excuse. If they truly wanted to learn Islam, that they would send a nafar uh, and that this nafar would learn the faith and then go back to their people to educate them on the faith. And that is why, that is why if you notice, مَا كَانَ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ لِيَنْفِرُوا كَافَةً فَلَوْلَا نَفَرَ مِنْ كُلِّ فِرْقَةٍ مِنْهُمْ طَائِفَةٌ لِيَتَفَقَّوْا فِي الدِّينِ وَلِيُنْذِرُوا قَوْمَهُمْ إِذَا رَجَعُوا إِلَيْهِمْ لَعَلَّهُمْ يَحْذَرُونَ It doesn't mention fighting. Fighting is put in brackets, meaning it is a later understanding. It doesn't mention fighting. What it mentions, what it, it literally says, is that it is not appropriate that if if it's in fact in reference to Banu Asad or to the people of Mudar, that it is not appropriate that all of you have come in an influx in mass using the excuse of learning the faith. But in fact, that if this, if the objective was to learn the faith, you would, there would be a representative group that comes, that then learns and returns to your homeland. To, um, so the reason this is interesting is that this area became co-opted especially by the scholarly class. It, although originally it addressed a particular historical context in which, as I said, there is, Medina is swarmed by uh, these tribal converts that use the, the excuse of learning, of the need to learn Islam to end up 
forcing the state to take care of them. But what the reports tell us is by that this influx of this migration to Medina caused a great deal of social hardship because these people apparently, uh, you know, didn't, they, they, they um, uh, laid around in the streets, they started harassing people, they become, became a source of uh, quite a bit of social disruption. What is interesting is that after the revelation of this area, in fact, the Prophet and the companions negotiate with Banu Asad and with uh, Mubar to go back to their um, to, to their home. To in, to in fact, a, a representative group remained in Medina, and the the rest went back home, and by doing so, an important precedent was set in that this is becoming Muslim did not mean that there will be a migratory influx from the tribal territory into the urban center of Medina itself uh, because that demographic change will have a, a monumental consequences upon the makeup of Arabia and the geopolitics of Arabia itself. But nevertheless, after, I mean, it's not clear when precisely that happens, but within the, the first centuries of Islam, this particular area, the, the context of talking, the initial revelation of dealing with a specific historical challenge of these tribes that swarmed Medina, became largely forgotten and this area was became was interpreted to mean that not everyone can go to war a group remains behind to specialize in scholarly pursuits rather than in in combat although the area itself doesn't mention war and doesn't mention combat is this clear Okay. Okay. Now, We are approaching the closing of Surah At-Tawbah. So, there is, after the um, after addressing this issue of 
the influx of tribes we have a refrain although there is no particular context reported to this refrain and that is in 123 O believers, fight against those deniers of the truth or fight the kuffar who are yalunakum, who are near you. And they must find that you are resolute and strong and adamant. Muhammad Asad uses the word adamant. Um, the, I couldn't find any reported narratives about the context of 123, but if we understand it in the context of the totality of the surah itself, is that Surah Tawbah contrasts. Remember that the Surah dealt with hypocrisy, dissent, people who are not with the program when it comes to the Prophet and the disciples. And the, the Surah Tawbah contrasts between the social norm that Allah demands between Muslims, that the, the type of social ethic that should pervade the dealings of Muslims with one another. And as we will see that the, the the norm must be anchored in mercy and put it quite simply a mercy care benevolence and love but that does not mean that you then are weak or you do lack resolution or that you are soft or in, a, in our language today wimpy when it comes to confronting those who are hostile to you and we'll get to this contrast so i think that this verse is laying the ground to what will come at the end of surah tawbah the the very final verses of surah tawbah but before that, it again talks about a faction that, again, hypocrites, dissenters, people not with the program. And it tells, it tells us that Allah knows that there are those 
even as they were receiving Surah At-Tawbah, and Surah At-Tawbah is exposing weakness in faith and exposing those who are um, plagued by hypocrisy. Exposing the plans of the people who built the Masjid al-Dirar. And, you know, Allah exposing that they were in cahoots with the, or tried to be in cahoots with the Byzantines. And when Allah comes and says, you know, the, the, the core of faith is that you understand that you own nothing of your own intellect or your possessions, etc., etc. That Allah knows that there are those who, upon receiving all of that, they, instead of the answer, I, this is my my uh, what my take is that the the answer their feeling of discomfort, or that they respond with defiance. I mean, I suspect that those who were in fact involved with the events in Masjid al-Durar or those who had a very hard time accepting the idea that Allah is the true owner of everything, of all material possessions, and that Allah is the true owner of their soul, that Allah has, as, as the Quran say, purchased from people everything, that the people who had a true problem or a true challenge accepting that now it's not fidelity to the tribe it's not fidelity to the family it is a common it, it you are united by a common cause in which the, the allah is at the center of that and the prophet at the center of that and not these other divergences the tribe the family and so on that there once receiving all the, it, it must have made these people feel uncomfortable. In the same way that when we read Surah At-Tawbah, if we truly pay attention to Surah At-Tawbah, and those of us who know that we struggle with precisely what Surah At-Tawbah describes, we don't really have an understanding of what it means to to have that attitude that Allah is the true owner of all ma your, your material possessions or that Allah is the true owner of your intellect or whatever achievements you have, that there's a feeling of discomfort. Well, some responded to this feeling of discomfort by sheer defiance. And the sheer defiance is to come and say, you know, okay, fine, with all of that, none of this revelation increased our faith. Our faith is challenged and Allah exposing all the things that Allah has exposed has not strengthened our faith. In other words, and, and we, we, we just pass over this. At the time of the Prophet there were those who received everything Surah Tawbah talked about and still 
reacted to it by saying, as 124 says, who hear all of this, so then they respond by saying, has this increased the look at the other and they're, they're obviously this, the, this dissenting group is talking to one another and say, has this increased your faith at all? And of course, it's a rhetorical question because the obvious answer is no, it hasn't. So Allah simply tells them, I know that your hearts are, are diseased. And when you hear the challenges of Iman, all that happens to you is your hearts become more ill and more diseased. In other words, instead of challenging yourself to achieve Tawbah, to work towards repentance, you do the opposite. You further drift away. And of course, the, the, uh, in 126, when Allah says, have, you know, don't you see that every year since there are some of these people who are the dissenting group who have struggled with their faith for now 10 years, the whole Medina period. And those who have the historical memory, Allah is telling them, haven't you noticed that since the beginning of this Medinian period, and, and we notice this, by the way, and when you go back and you study the entire Medina revelation that we've talked about, you'll see that this actually uh, uh, holds out, that every year you have been presented with a serious challenge to your face at least once or twice a year. Serious, serious challenges as we saw like Ghazwat Hunayn or like the pilgrimage. In other words, these, these critical positions in which you presented you with a pivotal moment of real choice. You either choose to be among the believers and choose the path of Tawbah, of the path of repentance, or you continue the path of defiance. Okay. And Allah knows that for those of you who have been in the dissenting group, the, the, the hypocrites, that the, the, those that the Quran labels the hypocrites, that you perform socially to attain the social approval of others and you react to the fear of exclusion, but not to the challenge of belief. So, وَإِذَا مَا أُنزِلَتْ سُورَةٌ نَظَرَ بَعْضُهُمْ إِلَى بَعْضٍ هَلْ يَرَاكُمْ مِنْ أَحَدٍ ثُمَّ صَرَفُوا Every time you receive revelation, your primary concern is does anyone see 
that you truly lack faith. So all you are worried about is to hide the fact that you have doubts and that you don't really believe that your commitments and your loyalties and it should be to Allah and the Prophet. And Allah knows that this is what motivates you. This is what makes you, this is what gets you to tick. And so as long as you have not, you're not socially ostracized or socially uh, singled out, you keep, you know, on cruise control. You just keep going, uh, go, going along. There is a report that about 127, it's particularly, that says, I mean, uh, probably, I don't think it's an occasion for revelation. I just think that it, it's among the things that people noticed is that the same, the, the various people that um, were often labeled as the hypocrites and uh, that I have been calling the dissenting group, um, that if they could get away with, um, th that they would go, they, they would use any excuse that they can get away with not to do um, the uh, not fun stuff, the stuff that for them was not fun, like what? Like prayers. So the, uh, the reports say, Can we that when there are, uh, you know, any. Uh, they would, I mean, and in fact, we find that when it starts drizzling, they say, oh, you know, we didn't come to prayer because it was raining. And, it, you know, it was just drizzling. Or when there was a little bit of, the, the wind picks up, a little, and they say, oh, we, we feared that it's going to turn into a sandstorm, and they wouldn't come to prayer. Uh, or they would often say, you know, the, I, well, we didn't come to prayer because we had a headache. Or we didn't come to prayer because... Um, my kids were not feeling what I mean. The they were constantly and what you the, the and Allah says to them is that um, I, I know that ultimately the disease is in your hearts, and all of these are manifestations of an ailed heart that keeps resisting that core challenge of tawbah, of confrontation with your your weaknesses and a commitment to repent, a, commit, a commitment to change your path. Okay. So, and this, the, the ending of Surah Tawbah is not sufficiently comprehended or truly given its weight in the in the modern Islamic tradition. Look. So then we come approaching the end. فَإِنْ تَوَلَّوْا فَقُلْ حَزْبِيَ اللَّهُ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا هُوَ عَلَيْهِ تَوَكَّلْتُ وَهُوَ رَبِّ الْعَرْشِ الْعَظِيمِ So, 
after all of this, after talking about all of the problem with hypocrisy and with these people who are dissenters at the time of the Prophet and the challenge of Iman and all of that, Allah comes to the end of Surah At-Tawbah and says, understand that this is a prophet that is one of you and from the midst of you. And that what ails this prophet, the, the, the very moral attitude of this prophet towards you is care, the basic ethic of care, and Ra'uf, Rahim, and compassionate and merciful towards you. So, what defines the primary social ethic that must be found in a Muslim society is not one in which there are witch hunts, not one of anger or vengeance or a desire to get those who are different or those who disagree. The very reason that hypocrisy and the hypocrites and the dissenters have continued despite all the issues that Surah At-Tawbah talks about continue to exist is that this prophet is charged with caring for you and charged with being benevolent and merciful towards you. And so, when all is said and done, if they turn away from this prophet, what is your moral attitude towards rejection? Is to say, Hasbi Allah, Hasbi Allah, God is sufficient for me. I place my trust in Allah. In other words, to rejection does not equal vengeance or punishment. So the same surah this very same surah, Surah At-Tawbah, which has often in the Islamic tradition been claimed to be Surah Al-Qutal, the surah that, uh, surah, the pro-fighting surah, is in fact the surah that tells us that when all is said and done, the rejection is met with reliance on Allah. In other words, acceptance and forgiveness. Because if 
if you say حسبي الله ونعم الوكيل عليه توكلت وهو رب العرش العظيم that okay you've made your choices my choice is to rely on Allah so it is completely the, those who have tried to transform Surah At-Tawbah into a manifesto for intolerance and and Surah At-Tawbah is, is, is precisely about that. It's, it's precise, Surah At-Tawbah is a call for people, so a call for people to engage in introspection and to repent and to tell them ultimately your society has to be built upon the ethical moral core of the ideal of surrender to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but as to how you deal with one another it must be based on care and mercy and benevolence and acceptance that you cannot coerce one another in a nutshell so look now let me take a deep breath and let's encapsulate inside the entire surah at-tawbah because this is important so remember That we start out in Surah At-Tawbah with the challenge of Allah, of the challenge of people becoming conceited in material means and objective reasons in Hunayn you thought that you had the numbers and you had the logistically superior tools and Allah chose this opportunity to truly test you where you nearly were defeated in battle and the only reason you were not defeated in battle because there was a moral core amongst you that held steadfast and provided and played the role of an anchor for others. Hunayn presented you with one type of challenge and that is a challenge when you become overconfident and conceited and you forget that even victory and success is not from you. Now, and there are, a, but we move from there to now a challenge that is presented when you say you believe but you fail to carry through with the type of moral commitments that are needed for 
a true embodiment of belief. Some of you said you believed, but you failed to migrate when it was obligatory upon you to migrate. Some of you, and remember that those who had failed to migrate, they would often citing family pressure that prevented them from migrating. Shortly thereafter, Allah presented you after the victory in Mecca and after Hunayn with the challenge of having to stand up to those who you have a psychologically embedded sense of inferiority towards the Byzantines. People who you've never dared challenge or resist in the past. You heard that they, the Prophet received information that they were about to invade you and so sent this campaign. And from there, Surah At-Tawbah takes you through a journey into various challenges to a truly committed faith. So you notice that Surah At-Tawbah primary concern, the primary concern of Surah At-Tawbah is not external warfare. It is the internal struggle that creates a truly committed Muslim. In short, it's exactly as the first Muslims understood the meaning of the surah, that the point of a surah is the challenge of real repentance, the challenge of being a true Muslim. It is later Muslims who read Surah At-Tawbah in a highly selective way to say this is the, 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 the Surah that has the verses on Qital that abrogates everything else before it. Which is a clear distortion and misreading and a very partial reading of Surah At-Tawbah. Because actually what Surah At-Tawbah is about is the internal jihad a priori, the internal jihad, the jihad that is required, that gets you to make the type of moral commitments that a real Muslim, a true Muslim, is required to make. But in the process, it affirms what the Quran has been telling us all along that this faith is not based on coercion and that this faith 
is not based on persecution or compulsion. That ultimately, what the Prophet ﷺ has to offer his people is his care and his love and his concern. This is a challenge to us. It's not that all oh, oh, the Prophet had to offer it and, and we're off the hook. This is a challenge to us. And that the primary ethic is to create a social bond that doesn't rely on compulsion and coercion as its primary instrumentality. Because when, when all is said and done, if people turn away from you, all that is left to you is to say, that I leave my affairs in the hands of Allah. Surah At-Tawbah Um, of course, you remember that the reason that it became, especially in the Orientalist tradition, Surah At-Tawbah became sort of the embodiment of belligerency is because of the verse of Jizya is in Surah At-Tawbah, uh, that the, the command that, that only accept from the, um, which we've talked about. But it is remarkable that Surah At-Tawbah is first and foremost beginning and end about the internal jihad of purifying your faith and that even the issue of jizya which we've talked about is is that's not the center or the core of Surah At-Tawbah. It is mentioned in the context of the message of perfecting your face and cleansing the vessel inside, the vessel of your soul. Let's see if I forgot anything. Um, this, of course, I've talked about before, but also remember that in Surah At-Tawbah, that Allah, as Allah talks about the, the challenge of Tawbah, is Allah warns us about turning our faith into worshipping symbols of the faith. And when Allah tells us that those before us worshipped their rabbis and their priests, and the Prophet when he says, well, the Prophet is told, well, but they didn't actually worship them. And then the Prophet says, yeah, but they followed whatever they said blindly. That is what worshipping them means. Um, another form of a corruption of the faith when your relationship to Allah no longer meaningful because it is go through a proxy that effectively stands in for your relationship to the divine. Also, remember that in Surah At-Tawbah, 
as Allah mentions, warns us against the pitfalls of faith, and Allah warns us against the sudud and sabilillah, that there are those who, instead of faith, instead of Islam becoming a vehicle of rahmah and rafa and care, mercy and benevolence and compassion towards other, it becomes a method of repelling people away from the path of Allah. Um, Oh, and lest I forget also that exposing the excuse of which I emphasize repeatedly but exposing the excuse of saying well you know we could have well we can't sacrifice on Allah's mass because circumstance and Allah says well if you were truly serious about doing what needed to be done, you would have taken whatever preparatory steps, whatever steps were necessary to put yourself in a position where you can truly do the cause justice. Um, Yeah, I don't think I've forgotten, forgotten. Okay, so let me just then close it. I think that the core, if you want what summarizes the entire surah, is this challenge that Allah tells us, people who who say they, 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 they fool themselves into saying we want faith we want a certain moral life and I and intentionally need that because I I don't it's not just saying I, I want Islam it is claiming that you are committed to an ethically principled life but ultimately, your, the, the challenge is to be internally coherent, to do what is needed for the commitment of this principled life. And when all is said and done, when you fail, the, 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 the clear message of Surah Tawbah is that when you fail, you fail yourself. It is not society's role to persecute you for your failure. In fact, quite the opposite. Society is there to provide care, not persecution. But the failure is upon you because ultimately you failed yourself. Alhamdulillah, I think, fine, alhamdulillah, we've done sort of talk. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah, oh my gosh, this, uh, what an amazing achievement. So eight days of Surah Tawbah, and I always feel like when at the end, 
when you summarize everything and pull it all together, it's just mind-blowing um, with what it has left us with, and especially when you contrast, as you mentioned, what um, modern Muslims have turned this surah into and how, ironically, it's actually the opposite and the idea of internal jihad. Um, let me just <clears throat> summarize the highlights from this particular session, um, as I do usually. So you began by just again summarizing the Masjid al-Durar incident um, and that is really powerful to understand that modern Muslims oftentimes use this to say that dissent is not tolerated um, and that's a misreading um, and you pointing out that um, you know the Prophet uh, peace be upon him would have taken action you know, against this opposition group, either before or after um, tearing down the masjid, if opposition was actually not tolerated, but he didn't do either of those things. So it's not an issue of um, not allowing opposition, but that this was a situation where, where those people were trying to use this institution as a way of bringing in foreign intervention and not for the worship of God. Um, and that, um, treachery is really from a weakness of faith and I think one of the most powerful examples you gave us was the idea of the lions and the prey and how that even extending out to saying you know let's let's take a look at how the you you know the how the British and the US come together or you know white nations come together or colonizers come together we understand that two lions will not fight each other over prey but prey might betray one another for um, preserving themselves. And there are just so many modern examples and implications of how we Muslims today, as the example of prey, have no problem selling each other out. And that, you know, you cannot build an ummah. Can I just say, look, look, at, look, look at how what Muslims have done with Muslims in China. Oh my God, so can, many can examples. You, can you, can, can, can try, to, try to imagine, try to imagine Israelis doing this for doing acting this way with Jews persecuted uh, in concentration camps anywhere in the world. It is inconceivable that it, it is not just inconceivable for Jews, but it's also inconceivable for members of the dominant civilization in the world today. Uh, in Europe, that they would allow fellow white Europeans to perish in concentration camps anywhere in the world. Or Ukraine. Uh, look at what, yeah, look at our reaction to what's happened to Ukraine as a, but, but this is a, it precisely the, the, the ethics that sort of the Tawbah deals with and addresses directly. Yeah, sorry, it just occurred no, no, to me as you were talking. I mean, but you, we look, I mean, you can't help but think about all the modern examples as you're going through the surah, because, you know, if you're thinking about what the Saudis are doing in Yemen, what the, you know, whether it's the, the Chinese, the Rohingya, whether, I mean, the Muslims everywhere, Palestine, I mean, you know, again, the whole idea that you cannot build an ummah without this ethic of loyalty and trust, not betraying, um, not selling out, your fellow Muslims, so it's really shocking um, what what goes on. Um, 
Okay, and then verses um, 111 and 112, the, the supreme promise given by God and the reminder that this is the same promise that's in the Torah and the Gospels and the Quran. So, and pointing out that this is not the Islamic promise, it's the promise of monotheism um, from Abraham to the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon them, um, and defining the relationship between the creator and the created. Um, and as you, you know, I, like enumerated all of those um, particular points, um, and that, you know, verse 112 emphasizing that this is the formula for true believers. It's not about war again, but it's actually about what it means to be a true believer. Um, and then the really important discussion on verses 113 and 114 um, about praying for non-Muslims, because I've seen, you know, over the years how many people have reached out and um, that this oftentimes is even a point of, of people questioning the faith. Like, you know, you can't pray for your, your family members who are not Muslim or your best friends or people who you love that um, are, are beautiful souls, but you're somehow told that in Islam you're not allowed to do that, which is just such, um, it's, it's just so counter to everything that we understand. Um, and then also the idea um, of forgiveness um, versus praying for guidance. So like one of the things that jumped out to me is like, all these people who who are uh, supporting Trump, you know, like, yeah. can you pray for Trump? Well, I guess you could pray for guidance, maybe not forgiveness, right? Um, but uh, okay, so then um, pointing out that the difference fundamentally between those with faith and without faith is those that believe that you know there's you have a complete reliance on Allah or on God for everything versus those without faith who are um, either in disbelief or confusion or lack of certitude. And um, it's, it's such a powerful, uh, again, just, you know, this distinction and juxtaposition. Um, and that in the midst of the discussion, you said Surah Talba uh, addresses how um, people who want to attain this level of faith fail because they cannot really look beyond this world to the hereafter and remember that or they forget that there are consequences in the hereafter to their actions. Um, the really important point that social morality does not flower on its own but it needs people to take a stand. Um, and then ultimately the power of the rhetorical question, you know, have these verses that come to you increased your faith or have they turned you away? And do you notice that, you know, there are one to two challenges per year? I know I, as a convert, I was always told that you will be challenged once or twice in your life ongoing. Um, I don't know if maybe we could talk about that in the Q&A, right? Um, and that, you know, God um, calls out those who are really not necessary, not motivated by faith, but motiva motivated by their fear of social exclusion um, and are really just concerned with hiding the, their own doubts in front of others. Um, and instead of turning inward um, to address these challenges, they you know, are, are trying to kind of get out of things. And it's ironic, it's like, well, I mean, who, you know, how could, you're not gonna hide anything from God. God obviously knows what's going on. Um, and then ultimately that, to remind us that the prophet, peace be upon him, is all about care and love and mercy and emphasizing that, you know, Islam is not about persecution, coercion, um, you know, uh, all of the stuff that we see happening in Muslim countries today, you know, and even people's attitudes that Islam is supposed to be harsh and that, you know, people have a right to call you out anytime you even have like a hair coming out of your scarf. I mean, that's just so counter to this message of 
love and care and, and beauty um, and drawing people through your actions, um, you know, by attracting people as opposed to repelling them. Um, so again, just the, the message of, of what it takes to um, focus the, on the most important battle, which is the internal jihad. So, um, and when all is said and done, that Allah is enough, that that is enough for us to, you know, look at the world around us and comfort ourselves that even if we can't make those changes of, or, you know, that Allah is enough and that is in itself such a beautiful reassuring message. So thank you so much, Sheikh. I think for Q&A, we should save that for either next session or I guess we really only have one more surah. major surah, Surah Al-Ma'idah, that we have never covered before either through Line by Line or um, Project Illumin. But so we'll, we'll see if that's that's the next step. <laughs> we we'll, still we'll pray on it, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. But um, anyway, but but definitely, you know, after eight days, there are probably a lot of questions that we can go back and discuss. So send me your questions, and we'll decide whether we want to do like a dedicated Q and A session, or if we want to progress to the next Sora, We'll let you know. But definitely send send your questions through graceatasuli.org. If we have enough questions, then maybe we'll dedicate a halakha to the questions. Okay. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Can Sheikh mention the dhikr? Oh, sorry, yes, what's the dhikr? I'll mention it. It's, it's, uh, I think it's 30. I forget the number, but it's, I can tell you. Well, we'll repeat it again in the Q&A, but it would be really nice to have it in this session, too. It's... Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, Thir 32, 33. Verse 32 and 33. Okay, everybody. Thank you for being with us on this journey, on this last day. It's very special. Alhamdulillah. Hope you all have a wonderful week. And we will see you um, next week, inshallah. Hopefully Friday inshallah. for the khutbah. Okay. Assalamu <